When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Hal Blaine. And when I'm not behind my beautiful set of drums, I'm listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. You should too. DIY and Hal Studios presents... Hollywood, California. Art of Rock with Caution Friends. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Greetings all. You are listening to The Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. My name is Kosh and once again I'm behind the mic at Kosh Design Studios in Hollywood. First, just a bit of news. We are now available on SpotifyRadio.com and, most recently, Pandora. In fact, if you search, you can find us on about 40 different podcast distribution platforms these days. We are growing and growing. All of us at Pantheon Podcast love telling the stories about great moments in rock and roll. Whatever your taste in music, there is something for everyone. Find it all online at PantheonPodcast.com or wherever you find great podcasts. And expect new announcements here at the top of every new Art of Rock show. Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Pantheon Podcasts. Thank you. Let's get to the show and meet today's guest. This is Kosh, you know, the art director of the many classic albums in your collection, and I'm coming to you from the couch at Kosh Design Studios. We are located within the golden triangle of the famous audio studios in Hollywood. I'm privileged to be sitting on the aforementioned couch with Glenn Wexler. Glenn is a world-renowned photographer and digital graphics artist with a stunning portfolio. He has produced album covers and amazing images for Black Sabbath, Rush, 
Van Halen, Chaka Khan, Slaughter, ZZ Top, Michael Jackson, Boston, Kiss, Yes, and on and on. His soulful black and white portraits of Michael Jackson, Herbie Hancock, Bob Weir and Frank Zappa are uplifting. He is responsible for iconic logos for Van Halen, Black Sabbath, Aerosmith and the Star Wars trilogy. His stunning surreal prints are greatly sought after. There are riveting stories coming up how Glenn practices his craft and interacts with the artists and bands. Now you need to listen to our chat from the couch at Cost Design Studios in the recording capital of the world, Hollywood. I'm sitting on the couch with Glenn Wexler. The couch this moment is now placed in Kosh Design Studios. I thought I'd get my plug in. <laughs> Glenn, lovely to see you, man. Um, I've been looking at your work for years now. I think what I'd like to do is get straight into how you started. What gave you the inspiration? I know you sort of came, went straight into Art Centre. Um, and were you as well, were you a graphic designer at Art Centre, or were you going in there? Uh, and what what position were you taking when you w- walked into Art Centre and said, "I want to be here"? Well, first off, I want to say I, thank you for having me here. It's it's um, it's it's really a pleasure. Um, first off, I want to say that you've been one of my inspirations. Um, oh, come on! No, seriously. You know, I for me as a kid. My art collection was my album covers. Oh. And that's what informed me in terms of what photography could be. And Which um, you took to great heights, I might add. Yes. Well it was it was it's it's been a it's been a forty year long um Endeavor to avoid a day job, basically. I look at it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm un- I don't know about you, but I'm un- unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, to to um to address the the question of how I ended up at Art Center. When I left high school, I had no idea whatsoever what I was going to do. Um, and going to college was something that was kind of expected of me in our family, but not, not really high expectations. You know, my, my choice of schools was really kind of limited to going to a school in California. And um, I picked the first college I went to based on the location. I... Um, Used to spend a lot of summers as a kid backpacking in um, in in, um, in Northern California, and I became familiar with um, Humboldt State. And I basically went to Humboldt State because I wanted to be in the redwoods and mm, near the ocean. Lovely. And Beautiful, yeah. and it was it was all about the environment. And um, so I went there and tried to figure things out and kind of gravitated towards the art department. And um, Immediately started doing um, photography, um, mostly because I thought it was easy and yeah. it was fun. And um, but I had a couple very nurturing instructors, and um, they showed me different photographers, um, particularly um, photographers that were involved doing narrative type works. 
And that was that was inspirational for me. And I got serious about it. But after a year and a half at Art Center, or I'm sorry, a year and a half at, at Humboldt State, I had gone as far as I could in that program. And one of the things that, that really kind of kind of steered me in the direction that I was going to go at that point is I would sit in classroom critiques um, and listen to students um, rationalize darkroom accidents into concepts. And, <laughs> and I kind of, you know, so I, I had this epiphany at 18 that, um, yeah, that is not what I wanted to do. I, I, I wanted, I, I, I didn't want to bullshit my way through it. I figured if I was going to take this seriously, I wanted to develop the craft to be able to say what I wanted to say photographically. So I looked around at different colleges um, in which I could pursue photography. And my first, I first started looking at the different uh, fine art colleges and landed on Art Center, which was not really a fine art school. It was a commercial school. Yes, exactly. But it had the reputation of being the best photography school in the world in terms of learning craft. And I didn't feel, you know, I, I had this really kind of rebellious attitude. I didn't want to really learn from the past in terms of someone teaching me how to think conceptually. But I wanted to learn the technical side of photography to say what I wanted to say. And um, I went to Art Center with, with that intent to, to, to get the technical side behind me. And what date is this? I was in the first class at the Pasadena campus, which started, I believe, in January of 1976. 76, okay. Just, yeah, okay. Just wanted to get that timeline in because that's where I'm sort of sailing into my stuff on the West Coast at 76. And oh, you're yeah. And just coming right up my ass, it seems like. <laughs> well, you know, I, I remember a, a book. It was, I think it was called The Album Cover Album. That's it, yeah. And that. Expo- I think we've got, we've got one over there, I think, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that exposed me to, to your work and a lot of other really brilliant album cover designers. And for me, you know, I grew up with all my friends were musicians, and I was the one with no musical talent whatsoever. So I kind of had this fantasy, well, maybe I could do album covers, but it, it seemed like a fantasy job that was never going to materialize because it felt like, you know how many people were doing it. It was like, you know, it was all the people that were in the album cover album. That was what, maybe less than a dozen people in the world that were doing album covers back in the day. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, and then in clicks too. I had a lot of trouble breaking into LA. Yeah. That was my next question. Is How did you suddenly decide, if you decided you wanted to do album covers, which is great, how did you get in to do the first one? Okay, so I'm, I'm at Art Center and... I'm there with my own purpose, which is not the purpose of why someone goes to Art Center. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Art Center yeah. is a very, very sort of clean corporate sort of... Exactly. Compared to Otis, which is like wild, you know. <laughs> exactly. No, the notion at Art Center is they they were going to train you to be a very serious commercial photographer. Mm. And the aesthetic and the type of photography that uh, was being pushed on the students at the time was a very kind of 1960s Madison Avenue, very slick advertising, um, primarily still life photography. It was exactly the stuff I was not interested in. Mm-hmm. And um, I found myself really kind of going against the grain. So fourth term at Art Center, there was a, there was a big project. Um, Art Center, it's three terms a year. So this is just barely after. So this is starting my, my second year at Art Center. They had a project called the Industrial Book, and it was a term-long project. And the notion was is that you were supposed to pick a corporation or a company, 
and do an annual report type of book. Mm. And that had no interest to me. I'm sure. None, no interest whatsoever. So after several fights and um, going back and forth with the instructors and finally getting approved by um, the, the department chair, I believe it was, I got the approval to work with a rock band. Ah, here we go. And I, I met up with these guys, and they were an um, a emerging prog band. Um, and they were, they were getting traction in Los Angeles. There was a band called Satter. And um, I, so I worked with these guys, and I brought them into the Art Center studios, and I started shooting rock and roll oh at, at Art Center. And, with a soundtrack? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, these are all stills. <laughs> but, I, but I was also very much influenced by conceptual narrative photography. I, I would have to say that um, as as I mentioned earlier, you know, as a, as a teenager, it was my album covers that really kind of informed um, what was possible with photography. Mm. And the work that resonated with me the most was the work from Hypnosis. Yes, of course. Yes. And Storm and Poe. Exactly. Mm. And it was, you know, particularly the stuff they were doing with, with Pink Floyd. You know, mm. that to me was just, you know, that was the stuff that resonated with me musically. Those were the images that made sense to me. Or like Atom Heart Mother, you know, the cow. Oh, absolutely. Which come to your cows. Later. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Totally serendipitous how that came full circle. But yes, absolutely. But it was no, it was, it was like album covers like "Wish You Were Here." Just mm, yeah, brilliant, brilliant work. And so. I, you know, I was going kind of in... Wish You Here, that was the one with the handshake and the flames? Yes. Okay, I organised some of that. Did you? Yes, yeah. yes. My partner, Kay Steele, yeah, she was the one who organised, got the fire marshals in and all that sort of stuff. Yes. Just, yeah, just brilliant. <laughs> Today, it's, it's, you could do it digitally in no time, but in that, it took a whole day to set that up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and, and I actually did a project with Storm, and... Um, and he was very anti-digital when I was getting oh, into Storm's, digital. Storm was always very difficult. Yeah, storm, yeah, yeah, very, very difficult. Yeah, yes. but that's 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 a, that's an entirely different, different story. story. Yeah, yes, right. So anyway, I I had I was going down two kind of parallel paths when I was at Art Center. One was this was the initial path, the primary path I was on was to develop this vernacular of doing conceptual photography. And it was based in doing uh, multi-image type stuff. It was creating these improbable realities, images that looked real but were clearly manufactured. Mm -hmm. So in doing, and the other thing I was doing was portraiture. So with this project at, at Art Center, this industrial book and working with the rock band, it gave me the, the ability to create this book that was a blend of conceptual photography, multi-image stuff that was kind of the precursor to the improbable reality stuff that mm -hmm. that I became most known for with, with my album cover work. And then it was these very kind of classic rock and roll type um, uh, portraits that were kind of influenced more by the aesthetic of, say, like Irving Penn. And, oh, and, yeah. and, and that, you know, that very kind of just classic look to, to black and white photography. So... That became my initial portfolio, and um, I had met around the same time a um, a model, and she happened to be the sister of the guy that was Quincy Jones' right hand man. Oh, okay. and this was a guy Ed Eckstein, and the model was 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 Cece Eckstein, 
And their dad was the legendary jazz singer, Billy Eckstein. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so that, you know, there's a lot of people that have taken credit over the years in terms of, you know, getting my foot in the door. But it was the Eckstein family that, that absolutely got my foot in the door. It was, it was Cece's introduction to her brother, Ed. Mm. And Ed's introduction to the people at A and M and there we go. Okay, that's and, and, it. And, right. and Quincy Jones Productions. Yeah. And so, within months of finishing this industrial book project on the Rock Band at Art Center, I found myself at at A and M Records shooting a gatefold for the Brothers Johnson. Okay, Charlie well, Chaplin Studios. Y- yes, <laughs> which was which was a multi platinum act, and all of a sudden, here it, here I am. I've gotten. It was like saying "Open Sesame" to the the, the musical kingdom and getting mm. my getting myself getting my foot in the door, and at that point I never looked back. Mm-hmm. I, I I went in um, for my fifth term portfolio review at Art Center, um, and met with the department chair, and he's looking at my work. And if you you've got to imagine the scene, and and with all due respect, because these you know I you know. The guys that taught at Art Center, they were they were masters. I, I you know I I owe my education. Mm-hmm. I owe I owe a lot to my education. Everything I learned at, at Art Center, but if you can imagine the ultimate um, culture clash of yes, generations. Now. Yes. So here it is. I'm this. You know I'm 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 21, 22 years old. I've got hair down in my yeah, ass, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting I'm sitting across from this guy to me that looks like he's you know approaching a hundred. But obviously not. You know, it's just that's just that yes, age thing. Yeah, thing yeah. yeah, but very conservative. Um, very conservative suit guy. Suit and tie. Yeah. Well, yeah. not suit and tie, but he used to wear this yellow cardigan sweater. Oh, I got yeah, it. Yeah, yes, yeah. I got the picture. Yeah. I can imagine a pipe now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, he's he's looking at my work, flipping through my portfolio, and kind of shaking his head. Mm-hmm. And he goes, "Mr. Wexler, <laughs> oops. <laughs> um, what what do you intend to do with this?" <laughs> and I told him, <laughs> I'm reliving it. <laughs> so basically, I, I said, well, I, you know, I, I, I told him that I came to Art Center because I was really interested in becoming, fine, becoming a fine art photographer, but I wanted to learn the technique to be a serious fine art photographer to be able to say what I wanted to say with, with, with photography and not just kind of wing it and, and, and and turn you were not and, a shooter and, yeah, yeah, and, right? yeah and and yeah i didn't want to rationalize darkroom accidents into, yeah. into concepts so <laughs> so um he's so I'm, he's going through the work and um and i tell him that i had just shot my first album cover project and i never thought that i would be able to have opportunities to work in the music industry but all of a sudden the doors were opening for me and i th- at that point, I, I told him I really wanted to pursue work doing album cover art. And he got very, very serious and looked at me and said, this is not photography and you have no excuse doing it. Oh, my God. And he took me down to the gallery, the Arts Center Gallery of Student Work, and showed me the work that I should be doing. Oh, my God. And it was all the advertising cliches of, at the time. It was, it was, it was these it was these. Still lives, um, quote unquote conceptual still lives. Um, it would be shots of a waterproof watch with water drops on it. Oh, 
But beautifully know, all, shot. Beautifully I shot. All, <laughs> all, right. all, 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 you know, big softbox, you know, uh, beautiful highlights, all on black, very, very slick, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was, and you know, other, the other cliches. It was, it was a broken egg with a chick in the background. Oh, no. It was the wide angle shot of the fork with the cherry on the, on a, <laughs> you know. So at that point, that sealed the deal. I yeah, I thought that's it. You're yeah, out. <laughs> I, I, I asked him. I, I, I asked him if I could get permission to take the, um, the eighth term business class, mm. because that was the one thing that, that I was scared shitless about. You know, it's like. I was at. I had all the arrogance in the world, which gave me this, you know, you know, unearned confidence, you know, that you have when you're when you're that age, oh, yeah. where you think everything is shit and you know better, and you're going to go out and do what you're going to do. So I, you know, I, I had that arrogance um, and that confidence at that age to kind of feel like I could go out there and do it. But the thing that I was realistic about and would just scared me to no end was the business side so um i took the business class and um really paid attention the um the instructor um i'm actually still in touch with um to this day and a a few years later he had become my business manager oh he gave me some really great advice kind of you know kind of set me on my way so um the project with the Brothers Johnson had opened a lot of doors, as I'd mentioned. And I found, you know, within a few months later, I was working with Rufus and Shaka Khan. Oh, and, then, and then, you know, um, the next album cover that the, um, the Brothers Johnson had, they actually invited me to do the art direction as well. So, oh, really? Yeah. Who's the art director at A&M at the time? Rowan Young. And Rowan Chuck Young. B- yeah, okay. Rowan and Chuck Beeson. Yeah. Chuck. Oh, I've forgotten. Yeah. 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 But, and, and Rowan was, <laughs> what a master. That guy was yeah. brilliant. And mm. then... Chuck was just Chuck was so solid and just like the nicest guy yes, in the sweet world. Sweet guy, yes, yes. And all those guys, they were just so nurturing. Hmm. Um, but even when I did that first session at A and M, I was so green and just just so winging it. I'm going. I go into the studio to to shoot the brothers plus their band. I think it was like somewhere between twelve and fourteen guys total. Oh my god! It was me and my makeup artist and one Belco. <laughs> yeah, and no, and I and I brought my I brought my gear and I brought but and I brought this dry ice fog machine, but I had no one to run it. So I recruited Jordan Harris, who was the head of A and R. Yes. Oh yes, I remember him. And great guy, but Jordan ran the fog machine for me on my, my first shoot. Yeah. Well, at least it wasn't that diesel oil fog machine, didn't it? No, no, no it was, it was, it was a big dry out. ice one. Yeah. <laughs> dear, dear. So now you're sort of firmly ensconced in A and M, I presume. So you got Chaka Khan. Who else did you get on that on that roster? Well, no, Shaka was actually with um, with Warner Brothers. Oh, was she? Yeah. Okay. All right. But okay. but but Shaka was a referral through Ed Eckstein and Quincy Jones Productions. So, oh, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, but so you know, I got my foot in the door, and I was the new kid on the block. And there's this kind of wonderful thing that happens when 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 you're young and you're new. You know, you you find these people that want to embrace you. You know, it's it's much different. It's 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 harder when you you know when you start maturing and you've you've got this track record. Yeah, you know, it was I, it was actually relatively easy for me when I arrived in LA because I got the portfolio. Because you're the new kid in town. Yeah, you know, as Don Henley will sort of tell you. you <laughs> exactly. <know. laughs> um, but yeah, so how did you progress from that point on? So now you've got Chaka Khan. How's your roster now starting to expand? Well, initially, um, there was this assumption that I was a black photographer because I was shooting all R and B art. 
artist. Oh, so that's funny. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, how many, there weren't a lot of black kids named Wexler. So no, I was going to so, say, yeah, that yeah. sounds <laughs> slightly German or British or something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, so I, I, I kind of got my feet wet working with, with, with the Brothers Johnson, uh, Rufus, Shaka Khan, um, LTD, bands oh, like that. Yeah, okay. And then a, a couple years later, um, uh, the new wave artists started to emerge in Los Angeles. And I, um, I met up with um, uh, Nikki Chen and Mike Chapman, who, okay. had, who had formed Dreamland Records. And I met them through a up-and-coming artist named Shandy, who was the kind of the hot new wave artist at, at the time. And there was a big bidding war that was going on between... Nikki and Mike's label, which was Dreamland Records and mm. RSO, mm-hmm. and Dreamland. Oh, Stigwood, yes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and Dreamland ended up with the project and was one of their first releases. And I had got my and she was like she was the first artist I saw with multicolored hair, and we did this really fun project. And everyone thought she was going to be a superstar, and um, the stars didn't just didn't it align. Weren't aligned. Did no. not align no, on that yeah. one, which was and she had you know she had this amazing band you know. Um, Pat Mostolato was a drummer, John Sykes, Tim Pierce, you know. Oh my god, this you know, is high end. Yeah, yeah, Mike, you know, Mike Chapman was on the board, you oh, know, yeah. producing engineering. Yeah. And so I don't know, I, I should say I don't sure if he engineered, but he was he was he produced it. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, it, it it looked like she had everything going and it just it just didn't happen. But anyway, that that created a relationship with Dreamland Records and I did a project with Michael DeBar. Oh, um, Michael DeBar. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and another and Pamela DeBar, no doubt. Exactly, yes. exactly. <laughs> Actually, uh, Michael Michael wrote a real a little blurb for my new book, which oh, he is did? which is on the inside flap. Yeah. Oh, good. I should read that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Study that. Yeah. But so Michael and I had kind of reconnected, but you know, Michael, really interesting guy, absolute bona fide rock star in every mm-hmm. sense of the word, um, and still out there doing it which is which is yeah, amazing. I worked with him he was at a band called Detective that's right yeah yeah in fact I became really good friends with Tony Kay from yes he was the original, oh. he was he was the founding um uh the original keyboardist in yes and um and Tony played in detective oh really yeah oh I didn't know I realized that yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah well, I worked with Michael DeBar and we did detective and uh, yeah. the cover was just black with the word detective on it right you know, and unfortunately, I don't think I ever saw that gayful. I have to look for it now. It didn't sell very well. Yeah. Never <laughs> <laughs> mind. Yeah. But, but anyway, the, the new wave step um, kind of segued away to working with a lot of hair bands. And yes, here we go. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so this, this takes us into Van Halen. This takes us into, a, where do we want to go with this? Slaughter? Black, go, go, go. Tell me where you want to okay. go. Okay. Well, actually, you know, after doing the Dreamland work, um, I had met up with um, with Ken Scott, who mm-hmm. was a legendary producer. He's yeah. Ken was the um, second engineer for George Martin that, and the Beatles. That was his, his first gig, and then he went on to engineer for Jeff Beck. He worked on the Truth album, which, um, according to Ken, um, Jimmy Page was hanging out at those sessions and really became inspired to form Led Zeppelin at that point because that sound that they created on the Truth album was yes, okay, was, got it. was very much part of what mm. of, of, the, of Zeppelin sound. Mm. So, but anyway, I I I was introduced to Ken and um he started to um introduce me to a lot of his bands and Ken put a lot of energy into the band Missing Persons. 
In fact, um, it was the first, Ken was so enamored by that project that he, after his track record of producing so many legendary projects from Supertramp to David Bowie, Dale and John, and so, you know, just, just countless amazing artists, he decided to not only produce Missing Persons, but to manage them as well. But um, anyway, Ken introduced me to, to Missing Persons, which was an amazing mix of, um, of ex-Zappa musicians and incredibly talented. Um, and I had the opportunity to do the Spring Session M album cover, which was their, which was their, their biggest, first yeah. and biggest album. Wow. Yeah, and so did that. Um, and then after that, um, the hair bands started, to, started yeah. to emerge and worked with a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah, so I noticed yeah. <laughs> right. okay. Just looking at your portfolio, it's amazing. All right, so uh, who should we talk about as far as the, the hair bands are concerned? Who would you like to go in with? Oh, um, I don't know. You know, Slaughter's a good one. Let's start with Slaughter. Yeah. Because right? I, I followed you on Slaughter. You did, yes. Yes, I did. What, what was it called? Wild, what, I can't remember what it was Wild called. Wild Child or something yes, like that? Wild, the Wildlife. The Wildlife, yeah. That was yeah. it, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you've done this amazing thing with the the, the fairground thing. with the, you know, Stick it to you. Stick it to you, yeah, which is really brilliant. Was that your concept, I presume? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, that was my concept. Um, I had also, at, at that time period, I... Um, had been doing a lot of projects with Hugh Syme, who was, um, who I should say was, but is a, a, a well-known, um, respected um, art director um, and album cover designer. Um, Hugh and I met up, uh, I believe, around 1986. Um, Hugh was known mostly for his projects with Rush. He was their, yes, right. okay. he was their album cover designer and art director since, I believe, the day one. And um, so... Hugh and I, up to that point, kind of had um, kind of a parallel path. Hugh was illustrating and art directing, and I was doing photography and art direction. And um, Hugh reached out to me at one point. Um, I, I think his whole process of doing um, illustration was it was was slow. He's a brilliant illustrator, but very mm -hmm. very slow process. And he was looking for a photographer to collaborate with, and we we did many projects between like 86 i think one of the final ones we did together was was the slaughter project so so hugh and i collaborated on 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 slaughter yeah that was that was a nice piece wasn't it yeah was really beautiful piece yeah okay let's see where should we go oh, black sabbath black sabbath was a fun project um i got um i got hit up by um david coleman who is the creative director at at sony music mm -hmm. and he had asked me to design a logo for Black Sabbath. And um, he was looking for some sort of photographic type treatment. It was, it was the initial idea. This was, um, I believe, 1999. It was the first studio record that Black Sabbath had done in many, many years. And he wanted me to come up with something that felt important, that represented the history of the band and, and felt felt important in terms of them moving into the next the next millennium. So I worked on the type treatments that they'd asked me to, but I had this other idea of kind of this post-industrial coat of arms with a little demon girl yes, you know, right. on each side of it. <laughs> and I you know, and I even knew the the girl that I wanted to do that. She was a she was a friend of the family. And um, I had a great little great rapport with her and I knew she could pull this off and I, I did a production sketch of the idea. Um, so 
I go into the meeting with, with David. Um, there, there was a, a, a product manager there, and um, it was the first time I had met Sharon Osborne. Oh, oh okay. So, yeah. So, so it, it was – so I'm meeting with the three of them. I'm present, I presented the, the, um, the, the type treatments that they, they initially asked me to do, which they all were very – they all responded to them really well. And then after I showed him that, I said, well, this is what I really want to do. And I showed him the coat of arms concept. And the David was kind of quiet. Sharon was kind of quiet. And the product manager just went off on. He says, no, you absolutely cannot. We're not going to do this. Um, this is Ozzy's old image. We need to give him a new image. And okay. So I go, okay. So that was the meeting, and I kind of got my marching orders from, from not from David, but from the, from the product manager to, to, to proceed with, with the type treatments. So we get out of the meeting. Sharon comes up to me and says, I want to, I want to go out to the parking lot with you. So we get to the parking lot, and Sharon says, we're fucking going to do your cover. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah, nice, nice. and... Um, I was just in her English accent. In her English money. accent, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fake an English accent. But she, she says, "We're fucking gonna do your album cover," and, um, and what she did, she said, "What we're gonna do is we're gonna take it to the merchandising arm. They're gonna pay for it, and then I'm gonna go. Then she's gonna take it back to the label, and say this is our cover." Mm. And that's exactly what she did. Oh, great! Okay. Yeah, that worked out very well. It worked out very well. David was thrilled about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we got a nice cover. Yes, tell me about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I think the only people that weren't happy were the um, the grandparents of the little girl. Oh no! <laughs> they were. They saw that billboard on Sunset, and they were not pleased. Oh dear. Yeah, their their cute little daughter or your cute little granddaughter is a demon. So yes, that I know. So it was a t- oh dear. Yeah. Oh dear. Well, so we... <laughs> I think that I think that caused a, a, a temporary period of a little bit a little bit of stress with our, our friendship. Rift. With it. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> but it, but. <laughs> But at the but at the end of the day, it, it was it was a lot of fun, and I, I still see um, whenever I see the, the 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 model who's now now a grown woman. Yes, I, I bet I, that's funny. I, I asked her to do her scary eyes for me. Oh, do? Yeah. <laughs> and does she do? It? She does it. Yeah. She does. She does. <laughs> okay, um, let's go, Van Halen. Van Halen. Wow, um, a lot of not a material in here, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I did two I did two. Um, Projects for Van Halen in in the Van Hager um, period. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I did um, unlawful the the logo treatment for um, unlawful cardinal mm-hmm. knowledge, and um, that was an interesting project. They just wanted something very kind of organic, very textural. That was the idea of getting putting the logo into the the, the cowhide or into the into the in, into that skin-like mm-hmm. texture to just give it that very visceral, you know, um, quality. Um, I produced a couple other images for that project um, with the notion of for unlawful carnal knowledge of people being punished for their sins. And I did these two executions of one of a woman and one of a, of, of a guy. Um, uh, there's a close-up of a woman. It's very kind of subtle where the, um, she, as if she's on an electric chair. 
But um, those never, those never made it. sounded were too jolly. A little too jolly, yeah. A little, a little dark, but you know. But they were, they were kind of, you know, they were cool images. The one, the one image of the the woman in electric chair actually ended up in my my new book project. Oh, good. Which we yeah. have to talk about. Yeah, yeah. but um, so that was my first experience with, with Van Halen, and then um, I got called back a couple years later to work on um, Balance. Balance, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. which is which is the more well known cover of the, mm. of the two. So with that pro- that was a, there was an interesting process with with that project um initially um the project was called the seventh seal oh okay and i was asked to work on concepts for that and it always felt a little too metal too dark for van halen so i always kind of wondered about it but in the process of working on the concepts i had found this androgynous looking boy for this idea for for the seventh seal concept, which obviously was never produced, um, so we got to a point where I was called back into Warner Brothers, and Alex Van Halen's kind of the art guy for the representative for the band. So I met was meeting with Alex and um, Jerry Hyden, who was the, oh yeah Jerry, who was the um, the creative director mm-hmm. at, at Warner's for many years when they were just doing one. Oh, she brilliant, was great. Yeah. yeah, just one brilliant mm-hmm. album cover after another, mm-hmm. and she's still out there doing it. She mm-hmm. has a she has a design firm called Smog, which is one of the few remaining um, design firms that still do brilliant album cover art. Mm-hmm. So she's st- she's still out there doing it. But anyway, I I go into this meeting with with um, Alex and um, and Jerry, and they and the band had decided that the Seven Seal was too heavy. Um, it was just not the right direction, and they wanted to call now call the album um, Balance, and. I had asked I asked Alice Alex what what does balance mean to you you know because I wanted to get some point of reference in terms of where to go now conceptually and and what to what to you know what to conjure up for them and um, Alex had said well you know the band's gone through a lot of turmoil um, uh, Ed Leffler their their manager had passed away recently and they said you know it was really about kind of just holding things together and and moving forward. And Alex said something to me that totally blew me away and never expected to ever hear this from Van Halen, who I considered like the ultimate party band. Mm-hmm. Alex says to me, I want you to go out and explore the duality of the human psyche. Oh, heavy. I go, really? <laughs> <laughs> really? So, okay. okay. <laughs> I can do that. It's only good brief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, you know, so that's where the idea of the conjoined twins, twins came. Yeah. yeah, so it was it was about all the dualities there. Mm. the The aggressive looking kid is actually a kid that's responding to the other kid who's being having his hair pulled. They're sitting on the on the on the seesaw, which obviously in this post apocalyptic environment is totally unfunctional because you got the two kids that are stuck on mm. one side. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And the other thing that was kind of fun with that, which some people notice, other people don't, but I actually designed the um, the shape of the twins to look like the Van Halen logo. That escaped me. Yes, I have to mm-hmm. check that out. But I've got it right beside me. Oh, it's over there. Yeah, oh, I have to check that out. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So, oh, the, anyway, the, the the kid that we ended up using uh, was this four-year-old kid, um, which a lot of people thought was Ed's son, Wolfie Van Halen, who it's not. It, mm. um, um, Wolfie was was I think only about two years old at the mm. time. 
um, which is another story because he and after many many years, um, Wolfie and my son ended up in school together. Oh, really? Yeah, and became very close friends. But the, another story entirely. But um, this um, the kid that we found was from the Seven Seal casting, and just this beautiful kind of androgynous boy and um he was just he was perfect you didn't know if he was a boy a girl you know yeah and it was just he was just perfect perfect for the cover yeah the next album um let's talk about zz top zz top was another warner brothers project i was i was brought in once again by jerry hyden um the creative director of warners they wanted me to come up with something for the greatest hits and um really it was for me it was it was a uh, really fun project. Um, first and foremost, we got to cast the new ZZ Top girls, which was <laughs> <laughs> which was which was quite a scene. It was it was funny. Um, one of the things you're never supposed to do when you look for work is just knock blindly on somebody's door. But there was this kid that showed up at my door the day before the ZZ Top casting. And PRS, one of the rent, one of the, the camera store rental um, stores, was just down the street from my studio, and they they had told him that 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 he should meet me. So he, young guy, just walks over and knocks on my door. So this was on a Friday, and I had just lost my assistant for the casting. Uh, I, I was I so I needed an assistant for the following day. So this kid shows up, and he said he wanted to meet me, wanted a job as an assistant. I said, your time is great. We're, we're, we're casting for ZZ Top tomorrow. Thank God. He must have been oh, falling over. <laughs> yeah. Well, this thing was a freaking eye-opener for him. It was one of those rare rainy days in Los Angeles. And the women at the time, the models at the time, they had this notion of what it meant to be a ZZ Top girl. So I can't tell you how many models came in. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful women in trench coats. <laughs> Threw off the trench coats, and it was it was a sight to behold. And this kid, <laughs> not had them had the. Experience. How old was this kid? He must have been twenty one. Oh, maybe. okay, so, yeah, 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 maybe twenty twenty one. Just getting into photography, but he he thought, man, he had just you know walked into paradise. He, he walked into paradise. This is what the world of photography is about. <laughs> And um, no, it, it you know that those those days are few and fun between, but very very fun casting. Mm-hmm. And then um, I went through, I did my you know did my edits. It was the first time I had um, I had met Billy Gibbons in, mm-hmm. in person, and Billy wanted to be hands on with the casting of the of the new ZZ Top girls. So ZZ or, or Billy Billy um, Billy calls me up and. Um, we set up an appointment in the studio, and he asked me if it's okay if one of his friends shows up to to help him, you know, to determine which are the best girls. Mm. So, Billy shows up in a literally in a fifty style checkered cab. It's so oh, nice, so ZZ top. And Billy's and Billy tells me this, and I I I I, I don't know if it's true or not. He said he was in. Laguna Beach, he said this was the only cab he could get. Oh, but yeah, but it was like, it was so Billy. All right. So then 10 minutes later, this this classic muscle car pulls up and it's Dwight Yoakam. Oh, really? And Dwight's the guy. Dwight's the guy that Billy wants to bounce 
the ideas about who are the girls. Which studio are you in? Where are you? This is my studio in Highland. Okay, got yeah, it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm at, I'm, at, I'm at Highland and Melrose. Got it. The okay. studio I had for 23 years. Yeah, yeah. We picked the three girls, you know, two of the girls I'd known already, you know, um, but got great models for the shoot. So the, the, shoot's, the shoot's basically ready, ready to go. And it was, um, it was two days before the shoot. And it was one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me. It was about, it's approaching midnight, and I'm watching um, uh, Reservoir Dogs for the first time. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, so it's just at the moment of the Mexican standoff, mm-hmm. and everyone's lying on the ground, either dead or severely wounded, mm. and the phone rings. <laughs> the phone rings, and it's, and it's Billy, mm. and Billy apologizes for calling so late. And he says, I just got done talking with a band, and I got to run this idea by you. It's so out of step for us, or so out of step that I think it's perfect. He says, how would you feel about the band all wearing leopard skin sport jackets? And I said, you know, it's Billy Gibbons. How do you disagree? You yeah, know, yeah right, it's, true. The guy's brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course, of course we're going to do it. Mm. And so we figured out how to get the... the the jackets made within within a couple of days. My they, God, that's they, they were. We had them. We had them at the. We had them at the shoot, and um, and they ended up. Um, the they they then they used them in the video, and after that they ended up in a display case at the Hard Rock in Vegas. How lovely! How yeah. Nice. yeah, Wow, that must have been a scramble to get that together. Oh, we had um, we had a a brilliant um uh, stylist. She used and, to sew those giant sort of uh, soft. Um, puppy things. Remember, she had soft sculptures. She used yeah, to do. Yeah, but she was a she was a she was a brilliant, brilliant wardrobe stylist. Mm. And I don't remember every little detail how it came together, but mm. it came together at the end of the day, and they were done in time. Mm. Wow. And, and it was and it was a great shoot. And what's what's awesome is I just in 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 the last few months I reconnected with Billy. I I, I reached out to him to see if he would write the forward to my new book. Which he agreed to do, right? And did a brilliant job, and um, actually met up with him in um, Palm Springs right before um, he went down the road with his um, his Big Bad Blues Band, uh. which is another brilliant project. So I met up with Billy in Palm Springs uh, to um, to do a quick shoot with his with his new band. It was so I shot him uh, Matt Sorum from Guns N' Roses and um, and the other guitar player and his songwriting partner Austin Hanks, and. And I actually had the, the 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 great fortune to see these guys do their dress rehearsal, which was absolutely which was great, was absolutely brilliant stuff. But anyway, it was getting getting Billy to agree to write the forward to my book. Um, I can't think of anyone who would have been Perfect. better. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do, Boston? I did. I shot. Well, I did two things for Boston. One, um, I. I did a single sleep form, which was with a model, so I'd never met the band. Right. But I did another project more recently. It was an animation for Boston to open their show. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. My son's favorite band. Yeah, good Lord. Uh, portraits, your great portraits. Um, Michael Jackson. The portraits for me was always something that I loved to do, um, but it was almost the antithesis of what people really knew me for in terms exactly. of in terms of, of the the work that I would do for my album cover projects again the album cover projects were fantasy based they were 
It was about a narrative. They were complicated. It was, it was always about the notion that there was no such thing as an impossible image. If, if you could think it, I would try to figure out a way to create it. So for me, I always had access to the musicians. And it gave me the opportunity just to st strip out everything else. Just put them on a simple background, strip the artifice, and make it about a real human connection between me and the artist. And that's what I wanted. I wanted, you know, particularly during the 80s, it was just a time of incredible excess. And it was about the big personas. And it wasn't real. It was, it was, mm -hmm. man it was manufactured. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was marketing. It was branding. So what was important to me was just to strip that away and try to just get a really human type of connection with, with the artist and do these intimate kind of close-up type portraits. Um, there, there are portrait photographers in rock and roll that I really admire and really influenced me when I was young. You know, Norman Seif. No Seif, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in particular, you know. But where I learned a lot from looking at Norman's work what was very different about my approach, Norman's work was about the happening. Yes, exactly. It was it was very fluid. It was, it was always action. it was yeah. always moving. He he his assistant was was holding on to the umbrella with the light and moving as the artist moved and he was shooting thirty five millimeter and it was all very fluid. And I only I, I assisted one day in my entire career and that was with, with Norman because I oh, wanted really? to, I okay. wanted to meet Norman. Yeah. Hmm. I had the opportunity to um well, yeah, I met him and showed him my work, and and he was he was very flattering and and very encouraging, and asked me to if I would want to go out with him, and I went out with him to shoot the police for Life magazine. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So that was my that was my one experience assisting, and which was was which was really really fantastic. But the point that I was trying to make is that unlike what was going on in most rock and roll photography, I kind of took a different turn, and I wanted to just. I was locking down a Hasselblad on a tripod, and I wanted to be very considered about it. everything within the frame was very, very considered and very, very, you know, it was it was planned. You know, quite often when I would shoot those shoot the portraits, there was a kind of a preconceived image that I would have in terms of what you know I would you know where I you know where I saw this kind of going with the artist. But at the same time, that preconceived image was the basis that was just the starting point because you have to allow particularly when you work with people for a sense of spontaneity so i would always look for that also but like for example with the portrait with michael i um was working on an advertising campaign for for yamaha and um had michael and his i had michael and his brothers in in the studio for for a few days and we were doing these very kind of complex and probable reality manufactured type images um, for for the Yamaha campaign. One for um, musical interest for um, musical instruments, and the other one was for um, for their high end stereo gear. Right. But during that time, um, I was fortunate enough to kind of gain Michael's trust and confidence. And on the last day of shooting, he asked if he could stay late and if I would shoot his portraits. Nice. Yeah. It was a really nice experience. Um, you know, it's 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 so dis it's so disheartening to 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 
to see this media perception of Michael and of of late, and you know, the, the, I shouldn't say of late, but but when when was this shoot? When this was 1984. 84. Okay. Yeah, this was the absolute pinnacle of his career. This yes. was um, this was after Thriller and um, and right before the Victory Tour. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's so my experience with Michael is not the person that you see disparaged in the media nowadays. No. no. Um, he was warm. He was sincere. He was genuine. He was inquisitive. Um, he see, I knew him when he was this size. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, because he was the Jackson Five. Yeah, yeah. So I did a shoot with him there. Amazing. He was the sweetest little kid. Had a huge fro. Yeah, <laughs> really cool. Yes. And you know, I just had I just had amazing respect for him. He was mm. just a perfectionist in mm. every sense of the word. Just in, just so amazingly talented, and you know the. Being asked to do his portrait was was you know it was really that's hum- a beautiful piece of work. It was so it, was, it yeah. was flattering. It was humbling. I tell you, the one that really struck me was a Herbie Hancock. I just thought that was so soulful. Oh yeah, well, and Herbie, like Michael, is just another one of those artists that I just had incredible respect for. Mm-hmm. Shooting Herbie Hancock for me was was very much a similar experience to shooting Michael. He's he's one of those artists that I just have had incredible respect for um, as long as I can remember. You know, one of those albums as a kid that was very influential that I loved was was Headhunter, and um, I just was so enamored with with Herbie's talent from everything he did from Miles Davis to his fusion stuff. Just everything about him was was incredible. And I also had the experience to meet Herbie before that shoot. I had done a lot of work with. With Chick Corea, mm-hmm. and I was invited to Chick's wedding, where um, Herbie was the best man, and um, the most phenomenal lunch I have ever experienced was that lunch after Chick's wedding. It was at the Biltmore Hotel. The guests are having lunch, and there's two um, face-to-face white grand piano, white grand pianos. And Herbie's on one and Chick's on the other. Oh, my God. And they're playing for an hour and a half while everyone's eating. Good Lord. And so that experience alone just, you know, just gave me so much more of this kind of connection with Herbie and who he is. So I was asked by Jazz Times Magazine. Um, I did very, very little editorial, very little magazine work at the time. But um, they had called me and asked me if I would shoot Herbie for the cover. And, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. So um, we set up... Herbie didn't want to come to the studio, so we actually set up a studio environment in his backyard. But I had this notion of of Herbie where I wanted to get this connection between the man and his music, the connection to his hands. And that image was something that I kind of pre-visualized with, with his eyes closed and his leaning up against his hands and mm. kind of directed him to that and it just fell right into place mm. perfectly and it, it was it was. It worked so well because he's a well-known Buddhist by the way um, well, I, you know what I want to take you soon if not now um, into your um, digital realm and, the, you know, and how you got into that and how you worked it out um, what when you suddenly decided that you can manipulate things probably easier than how I would do things with a sort of knife and a glue and photograph things and airbrush, but you sort of got into that digital world and became a pioneer, in fact. 
It was it was very serendipitous. Um, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, when um, when I was in art center and being kind of informed visually by the work of hypnosis and kind of the magic of narrative storytelling, narrative storytelling and creating these these improbable type worlds with photography. Um, I was always of the mind that there was no such thing as an impossible image, and I would figure out how to create something by breaking down a concept and kind of reverse engineering it into manageable images. So it became a, it became like reverse architecture. Um, I would create the photographs of the components that I would need and then figure out a way to compose them back together. So originally I would do that by <clears throat> doing multiple exposures in camera. I would um, do multiple exposures in the dark room and if push came to shove um, I would send out and we would get a dye transfer print made oh yeah but remember those beautiful things oh yes. yeah yes. amazing <laughs> objects yeah yes. amazing yeah yeah so we would um, we'd go to Bob DeSantis who yeah, was, oh, Bob yeah yeah who down did, on Wilcox wasn't he yeah no, no, yes that's right yeah. oh no no Bob no, 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 no Bob was in the valley that was Paul Elmy Paul Elmy came in later and he was on Wilcox behind A&R that's right yeah, yeah. that's right yeah so, and, and and he, Paul was the other master. I worked with Paul as well. Mm. But both of those guys, there was a sense of craft where they would combine images on dye transfer prints, mm. which, you know, for people that, you know, most photographers don't even know about dye transfer prints, but they were the state-of-the-art color print. Um, this is how I presented Hotel California to the Eagles on dye transfers, huge dye transfers. Yeah. And they go, <gasps> it's the breathless, breathtaking. Yes. So, yeah, so we would do these beautiful photographic prints and do the have if if we couldn't if i couldn't do the if there's something about a word something needed to be outlined in a very meticulous way and i couldn't create the mask or do that in the dark room um we would send it out for a dye transfer print and then it would be traditionally airbrushed right. and, and retouched so we would figure out some way or another to create these improbable scenes using analog or traditional um, methods um, it was, I believe, 1987. I started getting the calls from this guy named Tony Redhead, this really eccentric Australian guy um, that had set up shop at the Post Group in Hollywood. It was a post-production facility. And Tony had worked with a company called Quantel, who had the uh, Quantel paint, paint box. box. Yes, I yeah. remember. Yes. Yeah. And the paint box was originally used in... Um, in, in post-production in film, in filmmaking, for compositing, in effect. And Tony had set it up to, to work for, for, a, for a 2D, for print output. So I, was, I had had some earlier um, experience with, with digital um, post-production. And, you know, it was, it was always, it was weird because when I was, you know, in the late 70s, when I was Art Center, this was something that the instructors would talk about that you know this that the world of photography was going to become digital eventually but it wasn't relevant to anything where i was doing at the time so it was in one ear out the other and when i originally saw the technology emerge we i saw this little tiny monitor with a pixelated image and it was worthless mm -hmm. there's there's nothing it was pre-pressed stuff and there's nothing nothing i could do with it so 
I started getting these calls from Tony Redhead, and I think on the third call, I figure, okay, what the fuck? I'm gonna go down. He's only a mile from my studio. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see what he's got going on here. I walk into this editing suite. He has a 35-inch high-def monitor, which was unheard of in the day. Mm-hmm. He has this full-on console where he's doing his image editing. He shows me a closet that's about five feet by eight feet tall that has this giant mainframe computer in it. And with all this computing technology that he had, it could still at that point in time could only do a 4,000 pixel frame, which was barely big enough for a CD cover. Yes, uh, I, just, I just suddenly dawned on me. Yeah, no, so, nothing. Yeah, right. no, it's, it's or enough for a single page ad. Yes, right. So he had this brilliant idea where he would get a Cytex machine, which was a post-production piece, or a, a, I'm sorry, a pre-pressed piece of equipment. Yes, I remember those, yeah. Where he could then combine two 4,000 pixel frames into an 8,000 pixel oh, frame. okay, here we go. So we, we would basically work on the images and sections. But anyway, I, I kind of jumped ahead. Tony shows me what's going on at, at, his, at, at his, his company. It was called Electric Paint. And I was, I was blown away. I had never seen anything like this. All of a sudden, the future that they had talked about when I was in Art Center 10 years earlier was finally here. Mm. And Tony, as a brilliant drug pusher would do, he said, your first one's free. <laughs> <laughs> and you were hooked, man. And I was hooked. Yeah. We, you know, what we, I was working, I was the creative director at the time on a fashion campaign. Mm. Or for a fashion account, and we had an ad that I was going to knock out, that I needed to knock out, and it involved um, kind of a surrealistic composited image, and it looked like a perfect test, and we did it, and it was brilliant, and what used to take weeks, we could now do in hours. Hours, yeah. And um, he f- figured out a way. They would they would do the image, they would record the session or record the finish the finished. Um, image on nine millimeter tape and then they would output to a machine called the MDA it was a film recorder and would output to an 8x10 transparency good load so the 8x10 transparency was it put back it put everything back into the the analog, analog world, world yes. yeah is what it, it's what the printing companies were were used to dealing with so you could take that transparency to pre-press and they knew what to do with it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they make so, their film, make their film from it. Yeah. So, so here it was. It was you know this was years before Photoshop, and I had access to this first Quantel paint box in, in North America, and it was perfectly applicable to my work, and we just I just hit the ground running. Great. It, yeah. yeah. So fantastic. This, that's how it's all started. That's how it all started, and it was. It was it was during a time period where um, the advertising world started to take notice of my work. As, you know, and I never thought I would do advertising. And you know, I was too naive at the time to realize that album cover art is indeed advertising. Yes, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, we're exactly, we're selling a product. Yeah, it's, it's, art it's, is meeting commerce. Exactly, it's yeah. it, it creates the branding image for yeah. the music. And but you know, in my own world, you know, when I entered the music, when I entered the you know, music industry doing album covers. You know, I 
since you know i in in my rebellious way i saw you know album covers as being separate from the commercial world you know which but they weren't they really no, weren't absolutely not they absolutely weren't. they weren't that yeah. was just you know that was just part of you that know, trucks have to run you know warehouses have to be filled christmas is coming exactly you know and the advertising has to go out and all this stuff so it becomes like a well christmas is always over in september as far as i'm concerned <laughs> exactly you know, exhausted about enough no more red and green please yes <laughs> <laughs> exactly so um you know, so I never had this notion of going into the ad world, but all of a sudden the ad world was coming after me because mm. these images from the music industry was influencing pop culture, and there was there was this sense that that could also work. These type of these type of images could work in the advertising realm. So all of a sudden, I've got this ten year jump on the advertising market in terms of producing these type of images. So we were. It was such a busy period. Um, unfortunately, it, it started to take me away from the music industry where my true passion mm. lied. But I found that we were doing a lot of fun images in the ad world. It's just kind of kind of strange when you think about where you started at Art Center and you were taken down into that gallery to see all these very sort of beautiful, very solid uh, images which was where you were supposed to be going in. Exactly. And now you're going, you, you know, you rebelled, but you're now doing the sort of same work and giving more inspiration to that work that you're now, you know, doing advertising and you're doing all your great stuff. And it's sort of diametrically opposed to the sort of way you were supposed to go at um, Art Center. Absolutely. You know, and the thing is, is that it's something that I clearly understand now, which I didn't have the experience to, to understand at the time. But... It just really comes down to the reality that you can't navigate by looking through the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. You navigate by going forward. So there's no sense in chasing trends or doing what's been done before. You know, I've always felt that if you're going to do something meaningful in in the art world, including commercial arts, you you make your own trends. You you you. What gives you value as an artist is by presenting your own vision. Right. And I, you know, where. Whereas the advertising world didn't really have a place for me when I was starting out, 10 years later, 15 years later, all of a sudden, you know, my work is now relevant for that market. Now you're doing these like really beautiful colossal prints. Um, and I presume uh, that you're just doing exactly what you want. You've no client now. There's no one to sort of... Uh, you're now your own worst critic, I believe, right? Well, I've always been. Yeah, yeah. you know that's that's because um, you haven't got a sort of art director looking over your shoulder. Um, you don't have a creative director looking over the art director looking over your shoulder, you know, and you haven't got sort of uh, to worry about deadlines. Well, I've I've always been my my harshest critic, I think, you know, and and that that and that was true i think when i was collaborating with other art directors and, mm. and creative directors um, well you probably had a more collaborative uh, sort of relationship than i did <laughs> yeah i know I, I was i was fortunate well you know because i you know i you know I, one of my great regrets looking back is that we never had a chance to to collaborate i know but, we've worked, never worked together yeah but, That'd be but great. Well, that's the deal work together to collaborate yes because we've had great fun that whole point now in the sort of you know where I am now, I only take on projects that I'm going to enjoy. 
Exactly. You know, you know? we're yeah, we're we're the point of life. where life is just too short. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've been through. You know, I've been done fifty years for Christ's sake. You know? Yeah. So now it's time just to sort of you know, I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah, I'd like to do your work, but you're too much. Yeah. Well, I find I find the advertising world that the the joy's been sucked out of it. You know, I, it used was it to, ever joyful? Yeah, yeah. We used to have. Well, the, it was joyful when when there was mystique around what we were doing. Ah, you know, when when no one understood the process. You yes. Know? Okay. Yeah. You're the magician. Yeah. Yes. We, 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 it, was, it was all alchemy. You know. <laughs> So I, you know, I, I get hired for the magic, and people will, the clients will let us do what we did, and it was a pre-recession economy. Um, there was a lot of money flowing, and people, there were there there wasn't this great aversion to a certain element of risk. Um, it was still in it was still when the print world was driven by anecdotal results. And what I mean by that is that a advertising agent agency would produce a brilliant print campaign and it would be plastered everywhere in magazines. And as a result of that brilliant work, it would elevate the brand, it would instill consumer confidence, it would resonate with the lifestyle, and sales or services would increase because you created a creative ad. What's what's really changed throughout the years is that that anecdotal results or evidence is is no longer valid. What's valid is is click through rates. And as the print the print world kind of goes away, it kind of has been diminished for for um, for for digital advertising. It's it what's the what's important the things that are important are different you know it's 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 and it's measured by these these analytics that that often have nothing to do with the actual content itself or the message itself uh-huh. so it's it's a different world in advertising um i also feel that since the market crash in 2008 there's been a kind of a state of fear that's kicked in in the corporate world, and what that what that's really resulted in is this lack of job security, and what what tends to happen is where when we used to see creatives, an agency creative director come to us, they would we would get often just a pencil sketch or you know the equivalent of a napkin sketch of an mm-hmm. idea, and okay do something brilliant with this and we do, do something, something brilliant we try yes. and we try to do something brilliant and yeah. we but of course we would we would keep we would keep we would be a collaboration we'd keep everyone engaged everyone would see what we'd, we were doing every step of the way there was incremental improvement uh, approvals of all the work but now what we see in the in the ad realm is this fear of making decisions so it's it's very difficult to actually create a concept or create a piece um that's planned in advance. I find when we do advertising projects nowadays, it becomes more a matter of of creating assets. Oh. And because the mystery is gone, everyone knows a little bit about Photoshop. Yes, I know. Yeah. So every yeah. So you know, everyone knows how to set type. Everyone knows how to do. To, they to, know, to, know how to set type beautifully. Though. Yeah. That's exactly. Yes. Exactly. So. 
So the the skill set that was required in terms of crafting these images has fallen by the wayside. Now it's just about how fast can you do it and how cheap can you do it. Mm-hmm. And no one wants to make a decision along the way. It's just like because it, if you make a decision, then you become accountable. And yes, if you become exactly. accountable for failure, then you lose your job. You're out. Yeah. 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 And no one no there there's just we we don't see that 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 bravery that we used to see in the ad world. So that's what I mean by the joy is gone. You know, it's yeah. like it's we go in and we do a job and do an assignment and everything looks like it's going to be or should be great and no matter how we try to prepare and for being blindsided in the process we always get blindsided by some sort of drama and it's just ah it's 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 exhausting you know i'm not saying that i will never do another advertising assignment i you know there's there's still people out there that i really respect but the, the assignment work out there, the good projects are, are few and far between. But you have another creative outlet. You have your paintings, your, as I call your electronic paintings. My, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, but, you know, the fine art world is, is tough too. You know, it's like, I, you, know, I, you know, fortunately I'm at a point in my career where I'm kind of pulling back and focusing on the stuff that's meaningful and important to me. Mm. Um, I've done my, I just got done... Um, Producing my first book um, in in twelve years, and getting ready to um, to to um, do a run of exhibitions with that, and I'm so I'd like to go back and and go through my archives, you know, as, and 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 generate books and 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 kind of build on what I've created because I really haven't put that out there properly. Tell us about your latest book, the latest portraits, and where it's going to be exhibited. And you're going to use this book signing coming up, right? Yeah, I've got um, I've got my first um, I've got the official book launch and exhibition. Um, it it opens uh, March 21st at Mr. Music Head Gallery on, yes. on Sunset in Hollywood, um, a great rock and roll gallery, first rock and roll gallery in Los Angeles. Um, Sam Milgram, the 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 owner of the gallery, he caught wind of. Um, of the project and he they they've shown my work over the years and yeah. I've, I've exhibited there in the past and he as soon as he caught wind of the project he asked me if I'd be interested in in doing a book signing and an exhibition there yeah so this is um this is my first exhibition and book in, in quite some time and I thought um you know well it's it's been a process to kind of um decide that this would be the first book that I was going to do and it's beautiful I mean I, I've just been looking at it it's Oh, thank you. You just gave me one. <laughs> well, it's beautiful. Stunned. It, Stunning, in fact. It's, so I wish you, you, know, you should do a lot. I think I should go around the world. I really do. It's fabulous. Well, I hope so. The, the, the initial response is, has been great. In fact, you know, the, book, you've, the books were just delivered yesterday. So you, you're actually, you got the first copy. That's so what I told you. Was it, I opened it. I, it, I could smell the ink. And yes. Sort of, yeah, love, love the, the smell, smell of a new book. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> So, Glenn, tell me, how did this book come about? Well, it's a book I've been thinking about for many, many years. Um, but it kind of got fast-tracked um, when I became friends with a really talented painter, um, a guy named Andy Burgess. And I met Andy in my childhood town of Palm Springs about uh, three, four years ago. And I met him at a at the Palm Springs Art Festival, or art show, and what was interesting about what Andy was doing is that he has kind of a David Hockney type approach to 
painting mid-century modern architecture. And my dad was a well-known mid-century architect, um, known specifically in the Palm Springs area. And Andy was painting a number of my, um, my dad's houses. And um, I thought the work was, was brilliant. And um, Andy and I became fast friends. And he became a big fan of my work as well. So there was this kind of built-in mutual respect that we both had for each other. Um, about a couple years after Andy and I had met, um, he had this idea of starting a publishing company of fine art books. And as I mentioned, this this is a book, the portrait book was something I had been thinking about for a long time, but Andy kind of has this kind of modernist sensibility. And he, out of all my work, he really gravitated to the simplicity and the honesty of, of the portraits, um, particularly of the 80s. So um, this was a book that I thought about taking to a big publisher like Tashin or Rizzoli, um, but then thought about how it could be a really cool collaboration to work with Andy and also have the ability to have absolute control of the edit and design the book myself and just control the thing. I, I'm a control freak by nature. <laughs> so hadn't noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so um, I decided to move ahead with Andy. Um, the, the nature of the book far exceeded what was, what was possible um, with a small publishing company, I just I had a bigger vision than what was in, which was in which would be in the financial scope of, of what a small publisher could do. So, we um, did a successful uh, Kickstarter campaign, and um, then it came down to we had the money in place, and it came down to finalizing the edit. And for me, it was it was really a fascinating um, process of digging through the archives and looking at images. Um, Looking at files that I had, some I hadn't seen in in thirty five years, some up to forty years. These negatives or these negatives and proof sheets. Yeah. yeah. So everything for the book um, is very uniform. Everything is Hasselblad format, black and oh, white, two and a quarter square, two and a quarter square. Absolutely. So yeah. everything is very consistent throughout the entire book and in the in the portfolio part of the book. And you've been framing these things in the camera. Right? In the camera. In-house. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So I, I went through the archives and. In finding the images to now scan um, for the book, um, it was my experience of many, many years in the darkroom that informed every decision that I made in the digital realm. So the scans were done digitally, and then I would, I would work on them on the computer, but the aesthetic and the decisions I, would, I made were based entirely off of the darkroom experience. So, and the prints that I make are on a photographic paper, or a photographic type surface paper. So when you look at the prints compared to a silver gelatin print, they're, it's a, they're essentially the same object at the end of the day. Wow. So it was so so. I guess the point that I wanted to make is that, is that the experience of the darkroom in all those analog years are now being blended with the digital world, and I'm getting the best of both. I think it's time for us to to wrap. Okay. I have to thank you so much for coming by and uh, telling us all those great stories because I didn't realise quite your progression from where you started at Art Centre all the way to where you are now, sort of sitting there, sort of like glowing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's been a fun ride. I, I, I wouldn't change anything. No, no, okay. That's the whole point, isn't it? You yeah. Know, just to be having fun, enjoying ourselves and sort of uh, making life good for other people. Thank you.
You have been listening to Glenn Wexler, master of photography and the creator of so many iconic rock images. This man is also a self-confessed perfectionist. I know what it is like to travel across the world to check the colours and watch thousands if not hundreds of thousands of prints and album covers flying off the mighty presses in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, London and Hong Kong. His black and white portraits of celebrities in the 80s are eagerly collected worldwide and he's just released a beautifully printed book titled The 80s Portrait Sessions. This man is rock royalty and his iconic images will last forever. This has been Art of Rock, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. I'm online at koshdesign.blogspot.com and you can find me on Facebook at Kosh Art. This is Kosh coming to you almost live from the couch in Kosh Design Studios in Tinseltown, Hollywood. Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rocking right into the next generation. Art of Rock is written by Kosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 